Do you like roller coasters? I imagine that we have some adrenaline junkies watching who love getting on a good roller coaster. Some of you maybe uh, get super nervous even just thinking about going on a roller coaster. I wouldn't call myself an enthusiast, but if I'm at an amusement park, I'm going to ride the roller coaster and it's probably going to be the best thing that happens that day. Uh, Maybe some of you have uh, ridden the, the wooden roller coaster at Playland. Uh, This roller coaster is over 60 years old, speeds of 60 kilometers an hour. And uh, I really enjoy and also don't enjoy this roller coaster. Uh, For starters, I feel like most roller coasters you go on at most amusement parks have have seats that are kind of contoured to your body and then a harness that comes over your shoulders so that you can move your arms from your elbows if you want, but you're not really moving a whole lot. On the wooden roller coaster... You get into these tiny little seats. There's two people per seat, and you're just jammed in there. You're shoulder to shoulder. And there's a a single metal bar that you pull down over your lap. That's the only kind of restraint that you have on this roller coaster. And and I always loved to to do this. I would take the, the wooden bar, and I would bring it towards me just enough so that it would click and lock into place but not enough so that it was actually tight against me. And then when they came to make sure that it was all tight, I'd kind of lean against it so they thought it was as far as it could go. I would take my feet then and plant them against the front of the the little car that I'm sitting in. And then we take off. You go around the first corner, you climb nice and slow up to the the, the very top of the roller coaster, and then you plummet down to the depths. And I would have my arms in the air, and because my little restraint wasn't very tight, I would actually lift up out of my seat so that the only thing really touching the car was my feet as we went down the hill. It was awesome. And you get to the bottom, and then you fly back up, and I get pushed back into my seat. Now, the reason I say I, I also don't really like this roller coaster is because it's quite a violent roller coaster. They're not gentle turns on this one. You get thrown back and forth in your little car. You better like the person next to you because you're going to get really close to them because as you go around the corner, you're flying into them and they're flying into you and and you get off and you almost feel like you're bruised because it was so painful going around all of these corners. A couple weeks ago, it was the middle of the night, and I was laying in bed trying to sleep. I'd been trying for a couple hours already and just thinking about stuff. What's going on in the world? Thinking about the church, thinking about all kinds of stuff. And I, this roller coaster image came to mind where it, it feels like in the past year, it's like we're riding a roller coaster. But instead of a nice roller coaster ride that slows down and stops and lets you off at the end, it just hurdles through and takes you on another lap and you just keep going and going and going and the unpredictability throws you from side to side and you never really know what's coming next. Feels chaotic. I was reflecting on this and I mean you've had times in your life aside from this last year that have probably felt similar where it just feels like life is speeding on by and it's unpredictable and chaotic. Life feels like that, like a roller coaster sometimes. I'm using this image because we're going to read a story today that reminds us of the, the chaos of life and how Jesus meets us in the midst of it. And the idea, the main idea that we're going to drive towards today is, is simply this. Jesus is more than you think he is. Jesus is more than you think he is. And then secondarily, Jesus is doing more than you think he's doing. 
We're jumping back today into our sermon series called Find and Follow. We paused this right before Christmas. We're calling it Find and Follow, which mirrors our mission statement of helping people find and follow Jesus. And we're journeying through the New Testament book of Mark. It's a biography of the life of Jesus written by John Mark. Mark wasn't one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but after Jesus' ascension, Mark and Peter spent a lot of time together. They were good friends, and they did ministry together. So Mark would hear the stories from Peter around the campfire or around the dinner table, or while Peter was preaching to the crowds, Mark would hear these stories, and he wrote them down for us. And this is considered one of the most trustworthy documents that we have about Jesus' life. We've noted that there are two main themes that Mark brings up over and over and over again. We'll see them again today. The first one is Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Mark wants us to know who Jesus really is. And the second theme is discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus, a follower of his? And and we see that in the life of the disciples in Mark, but it also confronts us with the question of, if Jesus is really who he says he is, what difference does it make for you and for me? How ought we to live if we're to follow Jesus? What defines a disciple? Mark wants to answer that question as he writes. So we've already had read for us a story here in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. This is a story that we're not going to focus solely on today, but it's too important just to pass by because the story that we do talk about, Jesus walking on water, is connected with the feeding of the 5,000. And Mark wants us to see the connections between these two stories. So the story began with the disciples returning. Now, where were they returning from? Well, if you think further back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had sent them out. He said to the disciples, don't take anything with you, but go out and tell people about me. Preach the good news, heal the sick, drive out demons. And the disciples had gone to do this and they'd come back excited saying, these are all the things that we accomplished when we went out in your name. Probably some amazing moments, some eye-opening opportunities for them where they said, can you believe that actually happened when we went and we did that? Now, sandwiched between when they left and when they returned, there's the story of John the Baptist who was killed. John the Baptist had prepared the way for Jesus. He'd run afoul of King Herod, and King Herod had beheaded him. And so, like Mark does in other places, he presents the glory of following Jesus, the amazing things that can happen when you give your life to Jesus and and obey him completely. But he also presents the, the cross, the suffering that you may have to walk through as a follower of Jesus. John the Baptist is an example here. So the disciples return. They must have been exhausted after everything that they had done and hearing the news of John the Baptist, they must have been completely wiped. If you've ever gone on a missions trip, by the time you get back, you just want to sleep for three days. And so they return and Jesus says, you guys need some rest. So let's go find a place to rest. But before they can find a place alone where they can, they can rest and debrief, a crowd comes. And Jesus has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he feeds them. Not only does he feed them bread, but he feeds them by teaching them. He feeds their souls by teaching them what is right and what is true. And then he realizes they're hungry. He looks at the disciples who had just had all these amazing experiences of ministry and should have been excited to practice their faith one more time. Jesus says, well, you feed them. It's actually emphasized in the Greek. You feed them. And the disciples, instead of operating on faith, they go, well, that would take 200 days wages to feed all of these people. 
And it also assumes that there's a Costco nearby with enough bread to feed everybody at one time. Jesus, that's just impossible. And Jesus looks at them and he asks a question that Jesus asks you and me every single day. Jesus says, what do you have? What do you have? If you will simply bring to me what you have, I will take it and I will make it into enough. It might seem really feeble what it is that you have. You might not think that you have enough energy or passion or skill or strength to bring to Jesus. But if you will just give him what you have, Jesus will take it and he will make it enough. Because he has that power. So Jesus multiplies the bread, feeds the crowd. Now, there are things going on in this story that we can easily miss if we, if we don't catch the Old Testament allusions that are happening here. Remember, Mark wants us to know who Jesus is, and Jesus is actually taking several themes from the Old Testament and applying them to himself in this story. Okay, the first one is from Psalm 23. You know, how does Psalm 23 start? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Well, Jesus sees these people as sheep without a shepherd. And he feeds them, he cares for them, he nurtures them. In fact, there's a detail here that, that Mark, I, I think, threw in here with a, an eye towards Psalm 23. He tells us they're in the wilderness, but when he tells us that the, the groups of 50 and 100 sat down, they sat down on green grass. <laughs> Just like the Lord is my shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures beside quiet waters. Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd who cares for the sheep. Jesus is also taking upon himself the mantle of Moses. You might remember Moses led the Israelites out into the wilderness, out of slavery. And they were hungry and they cried out to God and God provided bread from heaven in the form of manna that came down and settled on the ground like dew. In John 6, Jesus explicitly ties himself to this story. And in here, he does so by way of his example, by saying, I, I am the true bread from heaven. In other words, all of the nourishment that your soul and your spirit need are found in me. If you will eat my flesh, to use that crude phrase, you will experience eternal life. Your soul will be satisfied in me. There will be nothing else that you long for if you will accept me as the bread of life. And then not only that, Jesus is, is giving them this bread and they collect 12 basketfuls afterwards. You remember in the desert that they, they couldn't collect any extra. They were to take only what they needed. And when they tried to collect extra, it went, it went moldy and rotten overnight. And Jesus is saying, I provide bread that doesn't rot. In fact, there's an abundance of it. There will be some left over. Jesus is also taking upon himself the mantle of the true prophet. Both Elijah and Elisha, these great Old Testament prophets, had fed people miraculously in their ministry. And Jesus does so to a greater degree here, taking upon himself the title of, of the true prophet. Jesus is also foreshadowing several things that will happen. The Last Supper, where Jesus will break bread before he, the bread of life, goes to the cross and is broken for the people, for all humanity. He's also foreshadowing even further into the future, the messianic banquet when Jesus returns and all who have put their trust in him will eat together with him. Mark is really concerned that we would know who Jesus is. And in this story, there's a lot of detail, a lot of allusions to the Old Testament that help us understand who Jesus 
actually is. So there's the first theme, Jesus' identity as the Son of God. The second theme is discipleship. A disciple of Jesus offers what they have, feeble as it might seem, and Jesus will make it enough. That's what disciples do. They don't wait till they have it all together. They don't wait until they're perfect. They give what they have. So that's the feeding of the 5,000. Let's, let's move into the next story then, starting in verse 45, which is connected with that feeding of the 5,000, and you'll see why. Verse 45, immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, Jesus made his disciple get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they'd crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So, the disciples come to Jesus, reporting all the things they had done. They were tired. They needed rest. Jesus, uh, they come across this crowd, 5,000 men plus the women and children. Jesus spends all afternoon teaching them. Around dinner time, he feeds them. Then he sends uh, the, the crowd away and he sends the disciples away, not to rest, but to row across the lake. It's an interesting thing that Jesus would have them do when they need rest to actually get in the boat and go exert themselves physically. They still don't get their rest. Which is where I think this story really comes home for me. A powerful part of this story. See, the disciples are in the middle of this, this uh, challenge on the sea, but it's not necessarily life and death. At least Mark doesn't lead us to believe that this is a life and death scenario. You know, Jesus will do three water miracles in, in the book of Mark. The first one we studied in Mark 4, where Jesus is asleep in the boat and the storm is raging and the disciples are afraid that they're going to die. They wake Jesus up and Jesus calms the storm. Well, in this case, the disciples are just rowing and rowing, 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 and not making progress because the wind was so steadily coming against them. Here they are tired, they're exhausted. I imagine they're a little cranky by now. Maybe they're even grumble, grumble, grumbling about the situation that they're in and why Jesus would send them across the lake when they really just needed to rest. And they're out there all night long. a time of struggle. We get that, don't we? I mean, if we reflect on the last year, we've been in this struggle for a long time, right? Like, it's almost been a year since we were together in this building. It's almost been a year since we've been dealing with lockdowns and restrictions on movement, and we're tired of people telling us what we can and can't do. We've been struggling and sometimes really frustrated with what, what seems to be contradictory information. 
Uh, I love this example. I ran across this the other day on Twitter. Someone was uh, tweeting from a U.S. college wrestling match. And the, the person observed that the, uh, the wrestlers, the, the two combatants, were not allowed to shake hands before the match because of COVID. But then they wrestled, <laughs> right? Like you, you just kind of laugh at that. Like, how does that make sense? And, and there's been so many, so many things that we've gone through that, that make us say, how does that, how does that make sense? Or we hear one thing and then the next week we hear a different thing and then, then it changes again. And as much as we try to have sympathy and grace for those who are making decisions about these kinds of things, it can be hard. It can be a struggle to understand what's going on and why it's going on. And then there's information overload. I try to make it a practice myself to take a social media and electronic fast most of Friday, which is my, Saturday, my Sabbath. And I, I find that when I fail at that for several weeks in a row, my mind is like it can't keep up anymore. There's too much information coming at us all the time. It's a struggle. There's differing opinions on just about everything these days. And sometimes you have to wade into those disagreements, and that's a struggle. There's political tension that has been so palpable in the last year. Boy, we're tired of it all, aren't we? Feels like we're rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. And when is it ever going to end? And in some ways, I'm tired of even talking about it. You know, in my moments of great faith, I I like to say and, and quickly point to the fact that God is doing something these days and he's bringing about new opportunities and and online church brings a, 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 an opportunity to us that we might not have had otherwise. And, and all those things are true, but we also have to recognize that we're tired. And sometimes we can't see what God is doing. So let's not miss the, the message that, that Jesus is showing here and Mark is, is doing when he's writing. The, the first thing we need to recognize is the identity of Jesus. You know, Job 9 verse 8 says that God alone treads on the waves of the sea. So when Jesus is walking out towards the disciples, we see God himself on the water. You know, some people claim that Jesus never actually took upon himself the title of God. Well, there are multiple times where Jesus does this, not necessarily explicitly in his words, but by what he's doing. And we see that in the feeding of the 5,000 and we see it again in the walking on water. Only God walks on the water. And here's Jesus doing just that. Now, fascinating note in this story. Okay, did you notice the timeline? You see in verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. Now, uh, we could translate that as evening. And, and evening in, in that kind of a, a, a time system was between 6 and 9 p.m. So between 6 and 9 p.m., the boat's all out in the middle of the lake, and Jesus sees the disciples struggling okay, in the evening. Now, uh, verse 48, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Or uh, some translations say in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus went out to them. So he sees them between 6 and 9. He does nothing about it until 3 to 6 a.m. Like, thanks, Jesus. You could have maybe done something a little sooner than that. You know how tired they are. You know how weary they are. 
Tim Geddert makes this observation. Although Jesus has the power to do mighty deeds, he does not always exercise it in order to lighten the load for his followers. Instead, he deliberately waits an entire night before making a move to help them. Sometimes he waits the entire night before intervening in the challenge. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, I think God only God alone knows. But remember, Jesus is more than we think he is, and Jesus is doing more than we think he's doing. So when it seems like we're struggling and struggling and struggling, there is a greater purpose being accomplished. And we know that Jesus hasn't lost attention or lost his care for them, because we read next that, that Jesus is another interesting detail. Jesus intends to pass them by, which when we think about that in, in English, we actually think that's kind of rude or, or confusing. Like, why would Jesus walk all the way out there just to walk past them? But again, Jesus is taking upon himself another thing that, that God did in the Old Testament. In Exodus 33 with Moses and in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah, God meets Moses and then Elijah in, in times where they are extremely tired and discouraged and disappointed and questioning what God is up to. And God meets them in the moment by passing them by. He says to them, I'm going to show you my glory, but if you looked at me full in the face, you would die. So I'm going to pass you by and you will see my glory from behind. And, and this glory as it passes you by is a sign of my care for you. A sign that I see you in the struggle. A sign that, that I'm with you, that I'm giving you strength. And so Jesus intends to pass them by. To show them that he sees them, that he is with them, that he cares. Now, the difference between Moses, Elijah, and the disciples is that the disciples don't get it. <laughs> the disciples think they're seeing a ghost. And so they're afraid and they cry out. Mark says, uh, that makes this interesting uh, observation, that they, they didn't recognize him and he connects it with that they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand what Jesus was up to. They didn't understand all that Jesus was referencing and placing upon himself, identifying himself as God. Mark Strauss says the disciples' problem is not that they're unable to make headway against the wind or that they're not rowing hard enough. It's that they've not learned the lesson of the loaves, that God is at work through Jesus to accomplish his saving purpose. Disciples of Jesus are not expected to be fearless in every circumstance, but they are expected to learn from God's faithfulness in the past and grow in their faith for the future. So Mark's saying the disciples didn't get what happened before. They missed it. God had intervened and God had shown them who he was, but they didn't have eyes to see it. And so then when Jesus comes out on the water, they, they weren't prepared for what God wanted to do. So do you learn from the things that God has put in your past, the faithfulness that he's shown to you, so that when you're in the present trial, you can draw upon that for strength? Jesus is more than you think he is. And Jesus is doing more than you think he's doing. So Jesus' response to the disciples' fear is, is also worthy of our attention. You know, in Mark 4, when Jesus calmed the sea, when he'd been sleeping on the boat, and the disciples woke him up and said, don't you care if we drowned? Jesus chastised them for their lack of faith. 
He said to them, where is your faith? In this instance, Jesus responds with compassion and great care. And he says to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. I'm here, I'm with you, I see you, I see the struggle, and I meet you in it. Even when you think I'm far away, when I'm up on the mountain praying, I'm actually walking out towards you, showing you who I really am. And Jesus, again, is concerned about conveying his identity. He says, it is I, which is the Greek phrase, ego eimi, which is a, a, a translation of the Hebrew phrase that, that God used to identify himself to Moses and the Israelites. I am. I am who I am. That's what God said to the Israelites, this, this uh, self-declaration of God as the essence of, the, of being, of the one who truly is. And Jesus takes that upon himself. It is I. I am. The disciples don't get it. But we learn from it that Jesus claims this identity for himself. And so the disciples are to learn here that Jesus is the great I am, the true Moses, the true prophet, the coming Messiah who cares for them, who will sacrifice himself for them, and who one day will return to set all things right in the world to spend eternity with those who have put their trust in him. So perhaps right now life feels to you like a roller coaster that you just can't get off. Like it doesn't stop. It just keeps doing lap after lap after lap. I hope and pray that's not how you feel, but you've probably felt that at another time, if not right now. Maybe the, the chaos and unpredictability in your life is related to COVID and frustrations with COVID and, and, and all of that. Maybe it's completely unrelated. Maybe it's a health challenge that you're walking through that just goes on and on and on. Maybe you've been working so hard at your marriage and it seems like you're not getting anywhere. Maybe you're a student working so hard at school and it's just not working and relationships are hard and maybe your business isn't, isn't going the way that you thought it would and you're, you're rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing and it just doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere. Maybe you're trying to deal with a certain sin and you really desire to break free and you're working so hard and you've been working for so long and it doesn't feel like anything's happening. Okay, this, this story reminds us that Jesus is more than you think he is. He is greater than you think he is. No matter how great you think he is, he's greater than that. And he's doing more than you think he's doing, even when you can't see it. Sometimes you might have to persevere. Sometimes Jesus doesn't intervene right away. I was praying with someone a, a couple of weeks ago and, and I just, as I was praying, I was thinking, God, it's not fair how much this person has had to walk through. It's just one thing after another. Like, give them a break already. Sometimes you've got to persevere. Sometimes God gives you the grace and the strength to keep rowing, even though you're exhausted. But God is there with you. He sees you. He passes you by. If you will have the eyes to see, you will see him with you. 
You will see him giving you the strength. You will glimpse his power. And when you do, you will recognize that he's been doing more than you thought he was doing all along. Listen, one aspect of this that hits really close to home for me is the fact that we haven't met together in almost a year. And it's tiring. And I know we wish we could do more, and some of you wish we could do more. And by the way, next week we'll give an update on where we're at as a church and, and uh, what convictions we're operating under and what we hope and plan to do. And as much as we can say that online church has been a blessing because it has, uh, there's something that we've missed about being together. Someone said it to me so beautifully the other day. Uh, she said, there's, there's a, a kind of reverence and a kind of awe of God that develops in us together as we sing praises to God that doesn't happen in quite the same way when we're in the living room in our pajamas and our cup of coffee. We miss that. And, and it's okay to miss that and to lament that and to work towards when we'll be able to do that again. But we're in this period where we're rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing and we hope that the end is in sight, but we really don't know. So will we have eyes of faith to look around and see what God is doing in these days? Will we have eyes to, to ask God, what is it that you want to do in me in the midst of this frustration? Out of curiosity this week, I, I went and did some reading on how the church handled the Spanish flu in 1918. Um, predictably, maybe, uh, the church had much the same response as now. Uh, there, are, there were churches and, and pastors who spoke out really strongly against any kind of restriction and how dare the government tell us not to meet and this is our right and, and so on and so forth. Uh, there was, and I believe this was beyond just the church, but there was an anti-mask rally in San Francisco. And then there were churches who said it's our duty for the common good and the love of our neighbor to, to hold on, uh, to, to not meet together for now, for a time. And I came across this quote from uh, Reverend Francis James Grimke, who is in the latter camp. And, and you can apply this to COVID now if you want, but you can also apply this to any situation in life where you just feel like you've been struggling. This is what he said. And so anxious as I have been to resume work, I've waited patiently until the order was lifted. I started to worry at first as it seemed to upset all of our plans for the fall work. But I soon recovered my composure. I said to myself, why worry? God knows what he's doing. His work is not going to suffer. It will rather be a help to it in the end. Out of it, I believe great good is coming. All the churches, as well as the community at large, are going to be the stronger and better for this season of distress for which we have been passing. Listen, I know that when we're tired and we're struggling, it takes a lot of faith to say that. But brothers and sisters, may we persevere in the midst of the struggle. 
May we look to the God who is with us at every step of the way to provide for us the strength that we need to keep on rowing. And maybe it'll be a couple months more. Maybe it'll be longer. I don't know. None of us know. But one day we will be together again and God will receive all the glory. And if we will allow him, he will make us stronger in the meantime. And as we come out of it, he will give us new opportunities. He will give us new strength. His spirit will empower us. Because I believe, as Paul says in Philippians, that the God who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Friends, he has not abandoned us. He has not left us alone. Instead, he sees us And he comes to us on the water. And he will calm the wind. And he will calm the waves. And we will be amazed if we have eyes to see who Jesus really is and what he's really doing. Friends, Jesus is more than you think he is. And Jesus is doing more than you think he is doing. So let us with great faith cling to those promises. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we admit that we feel like we're rowing against the wind. And there's a lot of ways in which that happens in our lives. A lot of ways in which we struggle. And yet we cling to you as the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things. The one who is more powerful than the storm the one who meets us on the water. We pray, Lord, that you would intervene. We pray that where we haven't seen you intervene yet, that we would see your power. We pray that you give us eyes of faith to see what it is that you're up to that is beyond what we can even imagine these days. We recognize your power is greater than any force that stands against you or the church. And so it's in you that we take refuge. It's in you we put our hope. And we thank you for the ways in which you are working and how we celebrate you and how we will celebrate what you've done. Amen.